0: Wasn't it great a few minutes ago when Marianne said, good morning, faith kids. They're like, yeah, good morning. That was awesome. And isn't it great to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And aren't we privileged to sing songs to our great and glorious God? Yes, we are. And aren't we blessed to hear the word of God taught faithfully and true every single week? Absolutely. This is the Word of God from Acts chapter thirteen, one through 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. A Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem.
1: As uh, as Dan was preparing to read, I thought of a new ministry position at the church. Uh, sermon hype man. I think he's not here hyping me. He's hyping Jesus. If you know Dan, that's who he hypes. But, um, you know, I could use that, you know, each and every week. So thanks, Dan. It's pretty charging. I was just coming down from the Marianne uh, charge and, uh, and he brought me back up again. So uh Well, good morning. Welcome to faith. So glad to have you with us. What we have just heard is the next section of the scripture that we'll be talking through this morning in Acts chapter 13. And so uh, as you're making your way there in your Bibles, if you brought one with you, if you don't have one, we will make it available on the screen like we just did. Um, I have a tendency to throw in a lot of other supporting uh, passages of Scripture as well. And so if you get a little lost or if I reference them quickly or something, uh, if you got a handout on your way in, the sheet that you got with the sermon notes, somewhere about two-thirds of the way down, it says additional Scripture used in this message. I try to include all the Scripture that we've talked about. Um, It's not going to necessarily put it in the context for you, but if you're going to say to yourself later or in your small group, what was that verse that we talked about Sunday morning? It was kind of a, a a quick drive-by one or something, uh, it's going to be referenced for you there. Um, as well as, while you're looking at that sheet, we often talk about the practicality of God's Word here at Faith. And we'll try to make it as practical as possible as we're talking uh, live. But also, I've, I've indi- um, included some additional ways in which we can apply the Word of God at the bottom of the sermon sheet at, that you've been handed out today. So that's meant to give you some takeaways for the rest of this week and uh, what you do with it this time tomorrow, wherever you find yourself, that kind of thing. Uh, the, the Christian life is one of... Great confusion to society. They don't know often what a Christian is. There's a lot of opinion of what a Christian is or some ideas that way. Some of which, if they're misconceptions, some of that we've earned because we haven't done the Christian life quite the way that the Bible spells it out to be done. Um, Or maybe we've attempted to but have failed and yet we are recipients of God's grace. So that's a an aspect of the Christian life that gets put on display is that perfect people aren't the ones that are following Christ. It's the broken so it, it causes some confusion and some idea of what really is a Christian. And so in our text, we found uh, back in chapter 11 that in Antioch, that's where they were first called Christ ones or those that were belonging to the order or the council of Christ, this Jesus from Nazareth. And so not knowing exactly, uh, sometimes for us today, what a Christian should be, at least that we know from the scriptural um, uh, context that we've been given, that they had lived their lives in such a way that it earned them the name that we've gotten so used to today. They looked at their behavior. They looked at the characteristics. They looked at their, their traits and their affections and things. And they said, those are people that follow Jesus. They are followers of the way. So we come to today and we say, well, what really is a Christian? And most of us are still trying to figure that out for ourselves. Always wrestling and interacting with the grace of God that comes and cleans up all of our, or, or takes care of all the gaps in our our actions based on what we claim to believe. And then we're trying to represent Christ out in the world as best we can, and though sometimes failing at that. And then we have others that will say they're Christians who are doing things absolutely antithetical to the truths and the principles of scripture. And we say, please don't tell people that you're a Christian. Uh, it harms what we're trying to accomplish and do as well. And so we have all of those things swirling around. Well, what we're seeing taking place uh, is the development or the formation of what the way is, what this Christian life is all about. When left to our own devices of defining this for ourselves, we have a tendency to stop at the places that fulfill us the most, the experiences that we can get out of it and say, that's what a Christian life means to me. I have a cutoff point. It's like I, I, uh, I go to church or I hear some praise music or I rub shoulders with the uh, elbows, shoulders. What do you rub when you're hanging out with people? I don't know. That's a weird phrase. The places my mind goes is weirdest thing in the world mean elbow and it doesn't matter when you're hanging out with other people and you're saying that's what the christian life means to me is that i've made new friends or i really like my church or they sing the music that i like or it's a place for me to you know give of myself to a bigger cause that's bigger than me or something like that whatever it is we have a tendency to define what it means to follow christ and we say that's what the christian life means to me very rarely do we define the christian life as the next thing that makes us extremely uncomfortable Usually our definition of the Christian life or what is satisfying to us stops at a place of our personal comfort or our value assessment of what it means to live this life to its fullest. I I might be a little confusing to you here when I'm saying all this, um, but let me put it to you this way. The supernatural progression of the life of a believer one that is filled with the Spirit of God. We're going to talk about this this morning, being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a natural progression or a supernatural progression to it. The first thing is is that we become saved people. We recognize that our sin, not just the things that we've done, but how we were born, we were born in a state of sin, keeps us from the holiness of God. So we recognize, okay, so I, I have this gap between me and the holiness of God. I am undone before him. I am incomplete without him. So I become a saved person by acknowledging that need and thanking him for dying on the cross to provide what I couldn't earn myself. And then uh, uh, um, willingly following him in faith from that point on, I become a saved person. And then from a saved person, the Holy Spirit leads us to become a serving person where it isn't just about me anymore. Now I'm starting to have my eyes awaken to the needs of others. And I'm starting to see that some of the things that I have or can do, um, you know, could help somebody else that they would they, that they would benefit from that. So I start to get moved or challenged or compelled to move as a serving person. And then I become a sensitized person where I'm starting to recognize the voice of the Spirit more and more. Uh, those of you that remember the old stereo systems, right? Like, uh, I don't know what, what they were, JVCs and stuff like that. You know, you had the stereo components that would stack. Some of you might still have these because you're old school and classic, which I love respect. Um, You got the big speakers, you know, the separate speakers and everything. I always picture whenever I hear the voice of the Lord getting louder in the life of the believer, and then the voice of the world or the voice of my worldly or sinful desire starting to diminish, I picture it like two big volume knobs. And, and one is being turned up gradually. That's the voice of the Holy Spirit. The Lord doesn't just come in and just crank that thing so you can't hear anything else. He says, as I turn up the voice of the Holy Spirit in your heart and in your mind, as I'm starting to rattle around in there, that other volume knob that has been screaming at you and causing deafness and, and headaches is starting to turn down. That's more of the the supernatural progression of the Holy Spirit is that His voice gets louder while the voice of the world and our former desires starts to diminish. Thank you. It's free this week. You become a sensitized person hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit and then we become a saturated person. Somebody who is filled, what we would say is controlled by... The leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, that now my allegiance is to the one who has the way of life, who has all the answers that I don't have, has all the the encouragement to go forward, the one who is lighting my way. Now I am controlled by that one who is the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible refers to when they say being filled with the Spirit. Now, honestly, that's where a lot of Christianity ends for most people is a self-determination of what being filled by the Holy Spirit looks like. I have so much Jesus that I feel his presence. I'm awakened to the needs of the people around me and that sort of thing. So I'm trying to serve where I can and 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 just be available in that regard. And a lot of it is a great thing, but then it stops short of the 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 continuing progression of the spirit in everyone's life as he's working, which is to be a sent person. I'm, you know, just going off of the issues of my own life and what I see of the lives of people around me, that once we get a handle on what it means to be a growing Christian and we're thriving and we're hearing the word of God and we're getting kind of saturated, the hardest thing that it seems to be is to actually be propelled to move out because it's a whole new set of discomfort. We found Jesus on the heels of a lot of discomfort. Our life wasn't going well, that our answers were running us into dead ends and and there was just a lot of heartache. And so we saw that Jesus was giving us something that only he could supply. So we surrendered to that and we found all of this comfort and joy and peace in pursuing him. And then it gets to a point where we get acclimated to that so much that it's like somebody comes along and says, now you got to go share it with somebody else. Oh, that's kind of uncomfortable. But that is the natural progression. This is what Jesus told his followers in the the um, thematic verse of the book of Acts in chapter one, verse eight. He said, you will receive power. He's talking to his disciples when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is a power that Christians all across the land are claiming to seek. This is what we want. We want the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the earth. They received the power of the Holy Spirit to be sent. That was the result of their filling. In chapter five, they're going to be told by the Jewish council. You guys need to tone it down a little bit. You need to take that big volume knob and turn it down. You have saturated the region with your teachings and your doctrines. Imagine the mayor of Waterville or somebody in some official capacity saying to faith church, you need to dial it back a little bit. All we see is your people. All we hear is your doctrine. All we get is your teaching. What an amazing thing that would be to hear. That is what is happening under the power of the Holy Spirit from Jesus saying you will receive that power to be sent into all this region. So we are finding ourselves in Antioch again. We took a brief departure from there in chapter 12 to see what the Lord was doing to display his power amongst predominantly Jewish people. And now this is where the first missionary journey is going to take effect. We have now entered the phase for the rest of the book of Acts on what the Lord the, what the Lord is going to do for the rest of the world. That fire, that flame that's been ignited is now uh, being fully released to, to, um, to burn the rest of the map, so to speak. And all of that is launching from the strategy hub of Antioch. Last week, we heard that Herod Agrippa I was robbing God's glory, that he was taking all these accolades and credits for himself. He wore his shiny suit. You guys remember the shiny suit that he, he spoke to the masses, and he orated beautifully, and they said, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And he says, yeah, they're right. They're right. And God said, because you didn't give glory to me, on the heels of, of uh, executing my servant James and imprisoning my servant Peter, I'm going to have you die a very shameful death. And we saw that he dropped dead and, and was eaten by the worms, like I like to remind you just before we have lunch. So Herod Agrippa was dying shamefully, miserably, to prove a point that God's mission will advance under God's authority and nothing can stop it. Now the setting is changing. We're moving from those Jewish territories to predominantly Gentile territories. But Luke's point is the same. The only power that stands comes from the hand of God. And you and I would do best to remain firmly in the grip of that hand. So... Our challenge to our church, if you're coming into us new, you haven't heard what we're about or anything, we uh, uh, we, we desire to teach God's word kind of a, a verse by verse, chapter by chapter um, uh, style of things. But we are working our way through Acts because we believe that the Lord is preparing our church uniquely in the season of our life to be sent as uncomfortable as that might be, as unclear as that might be in the form of how, what form it takes and that kind of thing. But we believe this is the conversation that the Lord has for us at this time. And so we see it as our unique privilege to participate in the mission that carries the greatest power the world has ever seen, which is the spreading of God's love through forgiveness of sins. So I'm going to be taking this uh, section of chapter 3 to challenge us to get in and, and get involved, to participate, to join in on this mission. And we're going to see how they did this at the launch of all things that were about to spread globally coming from this uh, faithful group of believers in Antioch. So the first thing I'm going to look at here is that we join in the commissioning of gospel sending. Remember the foundation of how this church was birthed back in chapter two. We saw that the disciples were devoting themselves to the key elements of what it meant to be a church. They're devoting themselves to the apostles teaching. So they're hungry for truth. They're devoting themselves to fellowship and the breaking of bread. So now they're gathering together. They're sharing this experience together. And the prayers They are engrossed in worship. They are seeking the Lord, their God. So I believe that what's happening here is that they are carrying out the way that this church was founded to begin with, that the church movement was founded to begin with, that they were uniting through fellowship, that they were participating in sending the gospel out on the strength and the power of their teamwork, of the strength and the power of their friendship towards one another, their devotion to one another. John would later send out his letters that would have such uh, meaning to, to us and those that follow Christ. In 1 John 1, he would say that the life was made manifest, and we've seen it. This is the life we're describing now, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. I can't have fellowship with John. He's a long, long, long time ago. And yet he's saying he's writing these things so that all followers of Christ, all believers in Jesus can have fellowship with us. Those that have carried the torch, those that have carried their cross He says, and indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ, because my fellowship is with the same God that John served. He and I had fellowship together. This is more than just fellowship in the sense of like we had a couple weeks back where we serve a potluck dinner and we hang out and we get to know one another's names and occupations. Those things are great, but fellowship doesn't stop there. In other words, it goes beyond just being a friendly church to a mutually committed and connected church. If I were to, well, the definition of fellowship is simply a friendly association of shared interests. I will use that shared interest and uh, put a little financial term on it and call it a mutual investment. This is when we start to see the fellowship of the body taking place is now I'm mutually invested in the things that affect your life. You're mutually invested in the things that affect my life or in my walk before the Lord or how I'm living this uh, life in the world in which I find myself. See, the great commission that which Jesus told that we're all supposed to um, make disciples and, and baptize believers was given to the entire church, the whole church not just those that were in the audience at the time. So this is what we're seeing now as the church in Antioch is doing something simple like laying their hands on these that they're getting ready to send out. They're participating. This isn't some magical emotional experience. It's just like as soon as they lay their hands on them, something transfers supernaturally to them. That's not even said to us in the text. It's it's a demonstration of participation. We recognize you, uh, future leader or being sent out one, uh, that God has laid his hand on you, his hand of power on you. And so we are also identifying and participating in that by encouraging you to go. And we are sharing in this investment with you. It's a representation of what they saw the Lord doing. And if you look at who they're commissioning and letting go, I mean, it's a tall order. It's a great, collection of of names here that they're introducing to us we 've already heard of Barnabas, of course, he was given the nickname the Son of encouragement because that 's who he was simeon uh, who who might actually be there 's some speculation on this, and nothing I can prove. Simeon might be the Simon that was ordered to carry the cross of Jesus when he was running out of strength after being bludgeoned and beaten. And couldn't uh, carry the cross, and they said to uh, to Simon the Cyrene to pick up that cross and help Jesus carry it. Might be the same one, and that's kind of derived from some other um, uh, extra-biblical sources and how his family was also known to the church at a later date and stuff like that. But that's an interesting uh, individual, if that speculation is true. Lucius is also from Cyrene. Menaean is an interesting character because he grew up as the foster brother of Herod Antipas. And we know Herod Antipas from the execution of John the Baptist, the one who was in charge of reigning at the time of Jesus and his earthly ministry. And this is his foster brother who saw, you know, the foundation of what that guy would become and all that kind of stuff. I mean, this is a perspective that as it comes into your church leadership is kind of helpful. And of course, we know Saul by name who's going to be referred to as Paul, and this is a bit of just a, a drive-by comment. Those of you that are studying your, your scriptures and, and been waiting for this moment, I'm sorry to disappoint you. We're just going to comment and move on on the name change um, because I think that's what Luke's doing. Luke's ba- basically saying, Saul, and oh, by the way, from this point on, we're going to refer to him as Paul. What he's doing is he's saying it's, it's significant in the sense of the context of where Paul is now ministering. Uh, Paul was the name given to him as a Roman citizen from his father. And so uh, he was both Saul and both Paul. And there have been attempts in Christian circles and in teaching to make this great connection between that uh, Saul was the old man, and then after coming to Christ or in the new form of him serving or something, became Paul, and that's where the reference comes. That's a stretch, and it's not really true to what Luke is portraying here. Really, what's going on is Luke is saying, we've got a Jewish audience primarily uh, for Saul's early uh, interactions. Now we're going into the Gentile world. Let's call him Paul. Let's go by his Roman name. That's how he's going to be known own. All right. There's a lot more that you can study or see about that at this point or juncture. I don't think it's uh, that necessary. So what we're seeing with this collection of leaders is that they're about to make an incredible investment. If you're going to take two guys like Barnabas and Saul and say, we're willing to let them go. I mean, what if, I mean, Barnabas is like this great, you know, helpful guy. What if their hospitality ministry was just taken off? What if their whole deacon thing was like just running real smooth and it's all because Barnabas brought his wit and his wisdom and his care for one another and everything was just going so well and it's getting so comfortable in the church. Our ministries are starting to flourish and we're going to send him away. What if the pulpit ministry was finally coming to like we finally got this guy who's like really teaching us deep theological stuff and you're saying we're going to send him off and give it to the guy who's on the bench. It's an incredible investment because human nature wants to hang on to the the comforts and the things that they appreciate. And instead, the Holy Spirit says, no, no, the next progression is to go and descend. It's not an easy thing for a church to put their hands on these leaders and say, we're we're behind this. We might look at it as an easier thing than going themselves, but it's hard to let go of those that they respected. That's exactly what they were doing. Because you care about what you invest in or you invest in what you care about. If you go and get some some stocks and you start to invest in a a, cor, a a corporation that maybe you don't know anything about or you don't really care, you just heard it was a good investment. Now, every time their name comes up in a news cycle or any product that they, that they make, you're wondering how it's doing because your money's there. And this is what's happening. They're sending out their own. They have an investment that they're going to care about, that they're going to participate in even from a distance. I heard the uh, CEO of Ford some 10 years or so ago, he was new to the new to the role and he came in and I heard him give a talk about how when he came, it really concerned him because Ford was on the decline, which I think they are again, but I don't follow everything. So, but they had made a couple good moves a decade or so ago where the CEO came in and he said, what really concerned me is I went into the parking garage on my first day of work and I noticed how many Fords were not in the parking garage. He says, here I am saying, we're going to turn this company around, we're going to put some skin in the game and all that sort of stuff, and my own people aren't invested in the product in which they're trying to sell. That led to a plant manager, a manufacturing plant manager, changing the parking lot layout and saying, only, car, only Ford cars are allowed to park close to the building. If you have a non-Ford car, you're parking out in the back forty. It's a, it's a matter of investment. It's not just a, I believe in these things, or I hope that you guys do this and that. It's, I'm in this too. This is my thing. At Faith Church, we don't exist to make the saints comfortable. We exist to equip them as disciples so they go and make other disciples. We have to, in some sense, make things uncomfortable in order for us to move on. That's why we've been saying lately that we exist to make the truth of Jesus our way of life. If I'm studying the truth of Jesus, what I see is a missionary. What I see is one who left the comforts of heaven and gave up all of the glory that he rightly deserved, all the power that he already rightly had. Instead, humbled himself to be wrapped in human flesh. To have his beard pulled and his face punched and his head spit on. All because he had a mission to accomplish And that's going to be our way of life. Like I said before, that is not an easy calling. That is not the thing that is selling well in American Christianity today. But a firm conviction that I have is that a dying church and even a dying individual, at least on the inside, is one who lives primarily to receive blessings rather than being the blessing that others need to see. So this is all wrapped up in this church's fellowship. But also we see a heavy, heavy emphasis on their worship. Again, if we're defining terms, worship is regard with extravagant. I love this word in Webster's. It's an extravagant respect, an extravagant honor, an extravagant devotion. Think about what extravagant would mean if we applied it to the fact that I'm seeing God for all that he is and I'm lifting him up in praise above all that I am. Would you say that you do that extravagantly? Now, listen, I'm, I feel like in a lot of ways I'm preaching to the choir. I'm seeing hundreds of faces of people who are doing the countercultural thing, who are giving of their time and their safety and their um, uh, uh, opportunities and liberties and things on a Sunday morning to move out of that culture to come and have somebody tell them in their face, you're not doing enough. It's not easy to come in here. You're coming before the Lord because you want to have more of his truth revealed in your life. You want to have your way led, your your path lit. And that's commendable, especially from person to person. I think that's amazing. But the reality is, is that we can even make this something that fits our self-interest. And so to worship him extravagantly, to, to come before him with extravagant respect, with extravagant honor, and extravagant devotion, means that we should be anticipating that it's going to get uncomfortable soon. So this is what Acts 13 says to us in verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, you see, this is an active church. I believe that the Lord calls those that are already moving in the direction of, of following him that maybe that call gets deeper or more specific. But I very rarely, if ever, have seen somebody kind of resisting the Lord, saying, I can't be moved, I'm not doing anything, I'm sitting still, and now he's going to call me and use me greatly. We could even make the case that as Saul was running away from God, at least he was in motion. He was moving in the opposite direction. God said, I'm going to arrest you, send you back 180. But there was an energy there to it. There was a movement there that the Lord used to capitalize for his calling. David Platt points out in this passage that there are these key characteristics of a worshiping church. And I happen to agree with him on this. This this is a church who is united around the word of God. It says that they were following the prophets and teachers given to them. Prophets not necessarily meaning like telling you what's going to happen next Tuesday, but more like explaining the deeper truths and the mysteries of, of what God was doing in and amongst the church. Teachers looking back over the scriptures that they already had and making sense and relevance of what they were seeing happening unfold. So they were united around the word of God. They were enthralled with the glory of God because they were worshiping. They wanted to see <clears throat> the Lord high and lifted up. And so they made themselves available to that. They expressed that as they continued to lift them up in their praise. They were directed by the Spirit of God because you don't skip a meal without really wanting the Lord to do something, without being ready to hear His voice, without being ready for Him to tell you where to go and what to do, how to act. And so they had that investment in there, even uh, even in their fasting. They were recognizing when God said, set apart the ones that I have called, that they were there to affirm God's calling, not necessarily to be like, ah, who are we going to pick? They were waiting on the Lord and the Lord was able to say to them, I have called these two now get behind them and participate with them. They were directed by the spirit of God and surrendered to the mission of God. As we said at the outset, they're letting go of two very powerful, very key leaders in the church. Because they said, this is about God's mission, not our comfort, not our best wishes or anything along those lines. This is what God wants to accomplish. If it's better for them to go, who are we to get in their way? All of this is that we're seeing is that the progression of what the Holy Spirit does is he fills a people is that they get sent out. Because success, it's been said so often, success is not measured by a church's seating capacity. But by its sending capacity, I admit to you that so much of what I and so many others that do my kind of work think about, obsess about, or at least acknowledge or recognize is how many people they get to say these things in front of each and every Sunday. And a sign of a church's success is whether or not this is continuing to grow or now we've got to add another time slot or we've got to build another location or any of those kinds of things. And I, I admit that those things are energizing to a large degree and we shouldn't stay small just to stay humble. But the reality is, is the Lord is measuring us in our success on how willing we are to go, not just on how many we can add. He wants to multiply his word. And that's what we need to be humble and ready and willing to get behind us. He's doing it. So that's how we join in the commission of gospel sending. I've got just a couple more points here. I've got some time left. Let me try to move through them a little bit quickly. Secondly, we can join in the authority of gospel defending. This part's fun. We've got to be a little cautious on how we apply this in our own lives, but this part's pretty amazing because we are going to face external opposition. Part of the problem the church has run into in the last several years is they see everything as external opposition. There's always a fight to pick. There's always a point to be made and stuff, and then we're running ourselves ragged, exhausted, fighting everybody and chasing after every perceived enemy. But the reality is, is, there is external opposition. Paul encounters it here with this slippery little ma- magician here. Verse 6. When they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Ju- uh, Jesus, or Barjona, as some translations may have it. He was the proconsul, uh, he was with, I'm sorry, was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So there's some seeking going on. There's some interest going on at, from the part of this governor. That's what a proconsul is. And Bar-Jesus, whose name means son of salvation, ironically, is opposing the salvation that this governor might receive if he hears the word of God taught. So here is this son of salvation, in quotes, who is not living up to his name. Instead, he's practicing magic and um, sorcery and all these kinds of things, which many of the Jews knew that the Lord had taught them, you stay away from this stuff. You don't play around with it. You don't, it just tickles your interests and, and that sort of stuff. It's tantalizing that way, but it's it's error, it's wickedness, it's from the pits of hell. But many still look to it. They look to it for healing of their diseases. They look to it for the blessings that they could receive personally. Maybe it'd make them wealthier. Does this sound familiar at all? Far be it from me to say that there's a lot of magic and sorcery going on in quote-unquote Christian circles, but it sure seems that way. Even though we're supposed to stay away from all the spooky and all the things that we can't quite explain as we see going on in in scripture, as long as it gives us something out of it, well, we kind of open the door to it. Maybe we don't swear it all off. Now, Sergius wasn't a Christian yet, but they say he's a man of intelligence and wisdom and even he's kind of cozying up to bar Jesus a little bit. He's letting some of this influence get on him because even the most intelligent among us Still can fall victim to false promises. Or we might get some of that ego stroked if some of this magic or whatever, you know, bends in our favor, goes our way. I mean, they were leaning on magicians like this to defend themselves against their enemies. They were asking him to, they were hiring him to put curses on other people. That's the kind of world this guy was walking in. Galatians 6 7, Paul says, though. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap. And in so much irony, this is what this uh Elimis or this bar Jesus, the son of salvation magician guy is going to find out. Because Sergius Paulus seems to be God's target. God wants the governor to find hope and healing in, in, in forgiveness of his sins. And some fly-by-night little conjurer of tricks isn't going to get in his way. He's going to be dealt with swiftly and severely because God is not mocked and his mission is not thwarted by such weak um, non-power. So this is what Paul does. In verse 8, but Elymas the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, opposed them. So even the clarification of his name means it was basically an occupation at this point. It wasn't even like uh, true to his form. It was something he was doing to manipulate the crowds. Like an illusionist would be seeking to turn, turn the pro counsel away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Without hesitation, he calls it for what it is. we, We might say, Saul, this is an unbeliever, you know, have a better testimony. You should show a little bit more grace and everything. Saul in this instance, or Paul, I should say, I'll have to get used to calling him that now, started saying, no, this is an enemy of the work that God wants done. There's no time to mince words. There's no time to say, hey, buddy, maybe you want to give us a little bit of time here or anything. No, he's going to call him out because this guy has been dealing with nothing but treachery and wickedness. On helpless people. When Jesus looked at the masses, what did he say? He said, I, my heart breaks for them because they are a people who are lost sheep without a shepherd who are harassed and abused. Paul had had enough. He's seen enough harassment and abuse. You're the enemy of all righteousness. It's also interesting that he calls him the son of the devil when he was going around calling himself, what? The son of Salvation. Paul says, I'll give you a better name. We're into renaming people around here. And I've got a better one for you. Because you are the enemy of all righteousness. All that you do is deceitful and villainous. He says, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Isn't that what we talked about from Proverbs 3 last week? And if you delight yourself in the Lord or if you you follow him, what is his promise to you that he will make your paths? I'll get it out eventually. He'll make your paths straight. Paul is saying it seems like all of your efforts are to make crooked the already clear and straight paths of the Lord. And now behold, the hand of the Lord, if you wanted to see power, son of the devil, you're about to see it. The hand of the Lord is upon you. And in a manner in which Paul could at least say, I've had some experience with this. So I know what you're about to go through, at least for the next few days. You're going to be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Don't worry, you'll get over it. And if you're wise, you'll take your lesson to heart and you'll learn from it. Again, Paul is speaking from experience. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. There's even a hint of grace. Paul is nailing him between the eyes. And he's telling him exactly what he is, and he's reducing him in public so the rest of the village will see this is what we've been following all this time. But even it says in there that he'd be blind and unable to see for a time. That there's an open window on the other side of this that God is saying, if you adhere to my correction, you will find grace. If you're going through your Bible reading now and you're kind of following along some of the programs that we follow, you've been through a lot of uh, the uh, prophecy of the Old Testament. It sounds like God is just constantly like boom, boom, judgment, fire, discipline, and yet he always comes out the other side. But if you turn, here's what I have available to you. This is who the Lord is. His grace is always on the other side of his correction, if we don't scorn it, if we don't abuse that grace and looking at Paul and what he was doing in this direct confrontation, what we start to see is that the power of the Holy spirit, the filling of the Holy spirit causes us to hate the forces of hell. I don't know if you're sick of seeing all that hell does to those that you love or those that we interact with or those that we're around. I was just talking with Jeremy Jones this morning and he was just sharing with me an example of just going someplace kind of in a mundane fashion last night to pick something up and encountered somebody who was so battered and abused by life and probably wasn't fully there and all that was going on and just most likely open. I'm just being vague on purpose here, but most likely opening themselves up to further abuse and taking advantage of and everything. And he was just expressing because when you see that kind of emptiness, it just does something to you. At some point, we get angry at the forces of hell. We get angry at those who are manipulating the vulnerable in order to advance their own selfish causes. Jesus said something similar to even his buddy and follower, Peter, back in Matthew 16. Peter had heard enough. Jesus was saying, I'm about to go the way of imprisonment and execution, and I will be giving my life up. They will come and they will arrest me. Peter, being a good friend and a faithful follower, said, I'd never let that happen to you. Jesus, recognizing, pinpoint accuracy, that that statement is as though the voice of hell, because of all that it would hinder if he never followed through in his mission, he turned to his buddy and friend, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Even though we feel bad for Peter being reduced so quickly and being called such a heavy title, I mean, isn't that really what he was reflecting? What if he had influenced Jesus? I'm not saying he could have, but what if he had influenced Jesus to give up on the mission? You know what? They can't take my life. You're right, Peter. I need to live for me a little bit more. It's not about all these people. They don't even know my my existence. They just want something for themselves. What if he had talked about? What if he had won? And Jesus was completely determined to win your heart. And no force could withstand the power of his passion that he had for winning your soul. Not even his friend, and he would let him know exactly where those thoughts were coming from. So let me move a little quicker now. We have outside forces and we have internal discouragement and desertion. We saw very quickly in verse 5 that when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. John is like a, basically a catch-all, a, a do-gooder guy. He's going to be there and fill in all the gaps. He's there to serve. He's also the cousin of Barnabas, which means they knew who he was, and maybe he had some of those really nice guy genes going on with, uh, that we saw with Barnabas. Maybe he was like a cousin of the son of encouragement or something like that. Who knows? But in verse 13, we see that when they had traveled and came to a place, when they were leaving Paphos, that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Many have speculated why he left. Could have been some danger that was awaiting them in Pamphylia. Could have been the fact that he resented the fact that his his cousin Barnabas wasn't being as elevated in leadership as Paul was. We don't know. There's no real proof of this. But what we do know is that Paul wasn't happy with his departure. It wasn't like he just got sick and couldn't continue. Because in a couple chapters we look at this, Paul's going to say, I don't think we should take him on any further journeys. Because he already defected from us once. Paul's very clear and very harsh about this. It causes a great rift, a lot of stress between um, between him and Barnabas later on. And we'll talk about that. So something's going on here that he is going to walk away and be the discouragement in their future ministry. MacArthur commenting on this says, internal dissension, division and disunity continue to disrupt works of God that have stood fast against the storms of external opposition. It's like while we're battling all the outside forces, we got swords and shields and we're someone's coming up and stabbing you in the back. The troubles arise from our own camps so often, and they can become discouraging. But even this text helps us with that because it reminds us that the remedy for discouragement is chasing the glory of God, staying on mission with what he's given us to do. This is his journey and not just ours. And then lastly, we're going to take just a closer look at verse 12 to see that we get to join in the reaping of gospel harvesting through its Proclamation. Because the pro in verse 12 believed, and when he saw what had occurred, he saw the blindness struck on on Bar-Jesus, and he was astonished, though, at the teaching of the Lord. What caught the governor's attention was that the teaching made sense. That's what he sought out for, and now it's being backed by power and authority. So that's the lesson for all of us, is in order to prove our faith to others, go strike somebody with blindness. In Jesus' name, you can't do it. There it is. Call someone a son of the devil and all will be right. Go out and pick a fight. It's often what we think, isn't it? We see the example of Paul and we see what Jesus said to Peter and all these things. You're like, that's what I need is I need more backbone. And we do. We need to stand up to the forces of hell. But what's really on display with that kind of power today is a transformed life. Romans 12 tells us that Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship, our self-sacrifice, getting out of our own way, giving more of ourselves over to the control and the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's our spiritual worship. So he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We might stop short on verse 1 and say, okay, I've got to discipline my body as a living sacrifice. And the modern interpretation of that is, is like what we see on um, TikTok kind of, kind of videos and all this like self-help mantra and everything. is like more water, more salads because your body's a temple. They don't say who oh, it's a temple to or temple for, but your body's a temple. And we turn it twisted it into this self-serving kind of ambition instead of seeing what is beyond all this, which is the discipline of your body allows you to have your mind renewed. That why I do the things I do or don't do the things I don't do with my body comes from a place of transformation in the innermost me, which is my mind. God changes how you think and behave by transforming your heart. So what you want, what you wish for, where your allegiances are, starts to be transformed by the filling of the Spirit. And that changes our outward behavior. And when our lives are transformed, you platform the proclamation of the gospel. Others around you say, something's different about you. You approach things differently. When I look at you as a Christian and they give us that title or that expectation, what they're seeing is that you're displaying honesty, which isn't that prevalent out there in the working world, is it? You're demonstrating compassion, which most people sum up to something they can do in the moment. And then after that moment's gone, it's not really that long lasting. You're a person of integrity, which means you're trying to be the same person, whether they're looking or not. They can trust you. Your family can trust you. You're giving charitably of the resources that you have. It's not just about the accumulation of more for you. It's what you can give away. And you even live in submission to those who may not earn it, may not handle it that well. But you're doing that out of trust for your God. And they're looking at you going, I can't put it all together, but I think you're acting like a Christian. I don't know what to do with all this. There might be a Sergius in your life who is an intelligent person or one who's actually a little bit hungry to know where truth lies. And they start to see that you're living this thing out with power and you're proclaiming the truth and they will seek it out in you. That's been my great prayer for the people of our church is that in the places that we live, we wouldn't just elevate the ministry that we can do in the walls of the church. But in the places that we live, we would bring the gospel to those that we encounter, that they would see it lived out in us and that we would be bold enough to explain why. We get to participate in the great commission of Jesus Christ and experience the power of seeing lives transformed. We even have the opportunity to see our own lives transformed by that same power. Would you please stand? Lord God, this morning we are um, increasingly challenged by the faith of the early church. And I know the things that stand in my way, the obstacles and hurdles in my way that I have a difficulty clearing in order to be that faithful, that available, and that willing to follow. Lord, and I can only imagine the challenges that others in this room feel as well. So, Lord, we need you to be bigger than us. We know this. We know that you are, Lord, but we often don't recognize it. So I pray, God, that you would break our hearts for the the broken around us, that you would cause us to stretch ourselves in ways in which we would otherwise be tempted to hang on to our own safety nets. So, Lord, help us to see that the way that you are supernaturally progressing us is to move out of our territories, whatever they may be. And help us, Lord, to have the, the boldness to speak your name to have the boldness to proclaim the ways that you've transformed our lives. Make us, Lord, your mouthpieces. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.